Okaidi, I'm Johnny. I'm Michelle. I'm Matt. I'm Yoko. And I'm Hiro. From Nikkei Rising. Welcome to an extra special Yonsei podcast episode where all five of us will be your hosts. As part of the Time of Virtual Pilgrimage series, we've been bringing you roundtable discussions with young adults involved in and around the Japanese American community to honor our community's history and explore its implications today. This will be our final episode as part of the Tadaima series. So we decided to do an episode with just our five hosts. And we're super excited to gather here today to reflect on our experiences, not only of being Nikkei, but also on the whole process of creating the podcast. Today, we'll be exploring this week's theme of reconciliation and identity. Thank you for tuning into our final podcast. And without further ado, let's begin our last roundtable discussion with your favorite host. Today, instead of looking at a historical period or event, we'll be looking instead at the future of the Nikkei community and a little bit about the idea of Nikkei identity and what it means to all of us here at Yonsei. So for our first discussion topic, let's start off with a little bit about what it means to be Nikkei. So what were our experiences of growing up Nikkei? For with most of us being multiracial or biracial, how does that influence our Nikkei experience? And how, of course, did we get involved in the Nikkei community? If anyone wants to like to start off, go for it. Well, my, my Nikkei story starts off with, well, it goes a little bit back further than just me. Growing up, I didn't really have like a base in the Japanese American community. I would only really see like Nikkei relatives during holidays. So as I've become an adult in pursuing more of these areas of my identity, I seeked out, I sought out different ways that I could find out more about myself, my cultural self. So I did multiple things. I followed my sister's footsteps and I applied to Seattle Kokon Taiko, which is Seattle's original Taiko group. And I got accepted. And so I've been doing that for about a year now. (laughs) But uh, I haven't been able to practice uh, ever since the pandemic started. So that really sucks. I miss it so much. But beyond that, I also joined the Nindadoka pilgrimage, and I got a scholarship there to volunteer on the 2019 Nindadoka pilgrimage. And there is where I met, actually, I met Yoko, uh, (laughs) who was also a volunteer there uh, the previous year and was joining as well. So yeah, that's where like I met most of my, you know, my my Nikkei fam. Um, And that's where I've been like mainly based. It's been really nice to go straight from like not really knowing any Japanese people to like knowing a lot of Japanese people. And that was kind of the point. (laughs) See, that's my story. I feel like I can totally relate to you, Johnny, in terms of like knowing no Japanese people to all of a sudden just like being fully submerged into the community. Yeah. Yeah, to be quite honest, I really didn't get involved in the community until about a year ago. For the longest time, I felt like I wasn't allowed to be a part of the community. And that was just more rules I put upon myself, mainly because of two reasons. One being that I'm biracial, I'm only half Japanese. And the other reason being that I am a Shin Nikkei. So my family never experienced the incarceration because all of them were still in Japan. And because of that, I, I often told myself I can't be involved in the community because the community 
is so focused upon the connection that they have through the incarceration and the injustice that was brought upon the community because of the American government. So for the longest time, I just made myself unincluded. But after meeting Matt while trying to figure out who... (laughs) Yeah, after uh, meeting Matt on Subtle Nikkei Traits, we drove to Manzanar for the Manzanar pilgrimage. And I would say that was one of my first steps, getting involved in the community and getting to know people. Then from there, I joined the Nikkei community internship, met more people, and I've been involved in the community ever since. And I really can't imagine my life being anywhere else other than um, with the family that I have now. That's awesome, Hiro. I'm glad you mentioned um, NCI, the EK community internship, because that's really where I started feeling like as more part of the community. I mean, when I grew up, I I also didn't you know go to church and I didn't go play basketball, but I occasionally went to the Japanese Cultural Center in SF Japantown and I took a couple of classes and and went you know, when my grandparents wanted to go do something there. But other than that, I really wasn't involved in the community and didn't really feel like I could be because I didn't feel like I knew anything about Japanese culture or traditions. And still, even the Obon is unfamiliar to me. I didn't grow up going to those festivities. But I had a friend recommend me to check out the NCI program. And from there, I just really felt like I wanted to to learn more about my culture. And, and that's where I really started making those friends and making those connections with other young Nikkei and then eventually wanting to go back to Japan and, and learn more there through Kakahashi, which is actually where I met Hiro and Matt. So it's, it's really cool to see that come full circle and for us to, to continue to um, stay connected and, and put on programs and start new projects together. Yes, if anyone's interested in Kakahashi, go check out the first JA Opportunity Fair video. <laughs> Low-key plug. Also, NCI is in one of them as well. Yeah, so my experience, I feel like, is really different from all of yours. There's just so many, so much variation in how people grow up with these identities. But basically, I, like, from a very young age, was really exposed to my Japanese-American culture and identity because my mom, she's a sansei, and she really purposefully wanted me and my sister to learn about our culture and be proud of it and learn about our family's experiences and be proud of what our family had overcome. And we, so me and my sister, like, we both have Japanese names. We grew up going to Seattle Japanese language school also just in the Seattle Asian American community in general, we're super involved. Like we grew up playing on an Asian basketball team with a team that was a lot of Japanese girls. We, I don't know, we went to Obon every year. It was just like, that was always like a really big part of who I was since I was a tiny, like little child. And then I would say a big step though, for becoming more involved in kind of organizing in the Japanese American community was going on the Minidoka pilgrimage, like Johnny said. And that is where I met like a lot of community members that I'm close to now. And actually through that, I met all these kids who go to UW, University of Washington, and we all started UW's Nikkei Student Union. So yeah, I feel like I totally do not have any concept of what it's like to grow up feeling disconnected from that culture or identity because it was just always like huge for me. But yeah, here we all are. (laughs) This is honestly what I love so much about our community is that we have so many different stories and so many different variations of stories. And 
yet we all end up in the same place and we're all here. And I think this podcast and this whole Tadima series is really a good way of showing that. My story is, I guess, funny enough, a hybrid of, of everyone's a little bit. I think growing up in Arizona without a big JA community, I most people would think I was disconnected, but I wasn't entirely. Both my grandparents were part of JCL. So I, I grew up in JCL and I grew up going to JCL events and being around the small community that was here. But I didn't know about the stories of incarceration or what had happened during the war. Instead, I grew up with stories about my father's side, who were in the Holocaust, and my grandma's side, who were Chinese immigrants and dealing with Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s. So from a young age, I kind of was raised in social justice and raised on these stories. And it wasn't until I was probably 10 or 11 and actually learned about the incarceration story from a movie, of all things, that I really wanted to get more involved. And when I got to high school, I got more involved with the local JCL chapter and then even into the Pacific Southwest District and then going to college out in LA and being around Little Tokyo and all these large JA groups, I really got to explore it more. And it eventually led me down the path to study history and, and be a Japanese American history major and join Nikkei Student Union and join a mixed race club and join Taiko at USC as well, like Johnny. Wait, what? And then, I didn't that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, at, uh, I was part of our Taiko club at USC too. But I mean, all of that eventually led me down the path to now where I work for JCL, which is funny enough, something I never thought I would do. But I'm here now. And I, I think I owe so much of that to my grandparents and, and being able and being lucky enough to have grown up with JCL and with that community and with social justice in mind and them always pushing me and wanting me to do these things. And so I think that actually sort of leads into our next topic of discussion. How have our ancestors' stories and learning about the Japanese American history outside of the culture and, and the events and all these other things that we do, how has that impacted our identity and influenced our understanding of what it means to be Nikkei? So for me, although my family didn't experience the incarceration, I still feel like my ancestors' stories impacted who I am as a Nikkei. And the reason I say that is that the story that really allowed me to become interested in learning more about the history of both Japanese Americans and Japanese nationals was finding out that my grandmother had experienced and witnessed the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. And I feel that, in a sense, that has become a part of my identity because I could see the support within the Japanese American community for the Japanese nationals who experienced the atomic bomb, especially with the 75th anniversary this year. And it really allowed me to realize that I need to help other Shin Nikkei realize that although our families didn't experience the incarceration, we are part of the Japanese American community regardless because we are still here within the community and although our families were not incarcerated, we still see the, the consequences of the incarceration in our lives. For example, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, my mother, when she came to America, witnessed a lot of discrimination against her and her family due to her Japanese heritage. And because of that, she chose to assimilate into American culture, and that was passed down to me. So... I think that's what really like impacted me and my identity as a Nikkei. But learning that the community accepts me has allowed me to understand that being Nikkei is a lot more than just having a relative that was incarcerated during World War II. I think like Hiro said, and I said earlier, there's so many different stories and so many different aspects of being Nikkei and being part of this community. There's no, there is no one 
Japanese American story anymore. It's it's endless and boundless. And I mean, one of the crazy things to me is that that the community eventually, within the next couple of years, will be mostly mixed race, which is it blows my mind to think about sometimes. But I think looking back on these stories and of my ancestors and of Japanese American history, like I mentioned, I think obviously it influenced me a lot. I became a, a history major and I work for a Japanese American organization. And honestly, I I think back on it and I didn't realize that day when I walked downstairs and saw my parents watching a movie about the incarceration that it honestly would become my entire life almost and and come to to mean so much to me and to to share these stories and continue doing the work that my grandparents did and that so many others had started before us to continue on that tradition of keeping the story of incarceration alive so that it doesn't happen again but also using it to to make a difference for so many other communities in the wake of things like 9/11 and more recently with the protests going on and I think for a lot of us who who learned about our ancestor stories whether that was immigration or incarceration or the atomic bombings and surviving through that or surviving through the war in general, regardless of what side they were on. I think that has had a profound impact on all of us. And I think all of us who come to the community and who really stay within it and do projects like this, I think all of us do sort of share that as the the flashpoint for why we do it almost. That this these stories and this history is is why we do things like Yonsei or like Tadaima or JCL or the Minidoka pilgrimage or all of these different programs that we're a part of. And so I think that's really amazing. And again, me being the history nerd, I, I love to see it. And of course, it's, it's such a sad and infuriating history sometimes to read about, but obviously it means so much to us. And we know that it means so much to so many other people that we use it to stand up for others. And I think that's the one thing that I love about the community as well. Yeah, Matt, like you, you were saying about being more involved in the community than you ever anticipated. I think the same is for me, but I'm definitely not as involved or like I'm not super, super involved, but I'm definitely more involved than I expected. And I find this really interesting because I did spend a lot of time being taken care of by my grandparents on my mom's side, the ones that were incarcerated. And to me, it's particularly interesting because the same can be said about my cousins and my brother and we were all kind of, you know, primarily part-time being taken care of by my grandparents. And yet only myself, I'm the one that really got involved with the community and wanted to explore my JA roots a little bit more. And I am not really sure how that happened. I'm glad it happened. But uh, I think I still like, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> that, that connection just like having spent so much time with my grandparents and loving them as people and then wanting to know more about their stories and then having that curiosity lead to me making so many connections within the community, that community that I never expected to be a part of and making so many friends, like all (laughs) y'all. I think that's like one of the primary ways that it's affected my life and my understanding of what it means to be Mike is just by meeting all of these different people. And like Matt said, like learning all of these different stories about how other people have expressed their Nike identity. So I'm, yeah, I'm super grateful for that. And I'm, curious to hear what all y'all have to say for the rest of the episode as well (laughs) i feel like for me um so the question is like how how our ancestors stories and learning about it impacts our own identity but it's weird because like for me i feel like it's kind of one in the same like i i see myself as someone who only exists by extension of my ancestors or who who is here because of them so everything that i do kind of or every the lens that I look at the world with has to involve them you know and 
especially like my grandparents and stuff, like I see the world differently because of that. And that affects who I am. But something that I think is interesting that we haven't talked a lot about yet is that most of us here are multiracial or biracial. So most of us are half. So I think that's like a very interesting thing in terms of identity to talk about. Does anyone have anything to say about how being half impacted how you see either your non-Nikkei half or your Nikkei half or like how you viewed yourself or your ancestors or anything like that? 100%. Uh, have something to say about this. Uh, And what pops into my mind immediately is feeling really lost in college in terms of wanting to join certain cultural groups, whether that was, we didn't have NSU at my school, but we had Japanese Student Association and we had something called Mecha, which is for like the Latinx community. And I really wanted to explore both of those community groups. And I just never felt like I was enough of a particular race to join. I did not know enough about the culture to join. I hadn't participated in customs growing up enough to join. And I felt very not, I didn't want to say I felt excluded, but just like didn't know where to fit in and how to explore that without feeling very behind and feeling like I would have to to catch up almost in exploring my racial identity. So for me, that sense of not really belonging completely was there, even though they always, you know, talk about America's this melting pot of all these different cultures and being, I guess, that in and of myself just has felt like either being too much of something, too much of one thing and not enough of the other, or just kind of a grab bag of all that good stuff. And it was funny because I ended up just joining with my roommate in joining the Chinese Student Association, even <laughs> just, just, just to, I don't know, because that's where we made the friends. That's where we made friends, even though I didn't necessarily feel culturally connected. It was just interesting to find that sense of identity through another culture that I didn't expect because I wasn't blood quantum, whatever, connected. Yeah, Michelle, I can really relate to you when it comes to student organizations that are culturally based. Interesting enough, I've quite honestly always felt accepted by the Japanese American community and as a as a whole as soon as I entered it. But weirdly enough, I've always had trouble feeling accepted within the Latinx community. And I was reminded of this when you're talking about those clubs, because I can remember I walked up to a school club that was for Latinx students. And I walked up, I was really interested because I wanted to learn more about my Latinx culture. And as soon as I went up, I was just like, oh, so what, what is this organization all about? And they were like, oh, it's a Latinx student union, but you could still join if you'd like. Like, you, you don't have to be Latinx. And I was like, oh. Um, Yikes. I I actually am. I, I'm, I'm Mexican. And they're like, really? But yeah, just like hearing that. And I have definitely have felt this like weird relationship with my Latinx culture and heritage. And weirdly enough, I don't feel that way as much with my Japanese American community and heritage. And I feel like that may just be because I have more features that make myself look Asian or maybe the fact that I use my Japanese name rather than my more westernized name. But yeah, I I feel like 
being biracial does have its ups and downs. Like, of course, it's great to be able to mix my two cultures within my household as one night we're having enchiladas and then the next day we're making um, omuraisu. But sometimes trying to get involved in those multiple communities outside of the household can be disheartening at times. And there's definitely difficulties that come with it. But regardless of what has happened in my life, I, I am proud to say that I'm both a Japanese American and a Mexican American. Yes, you don't need to prove or justify any of that. <laughs> I feel like I can relate to some aspects of that because, like, so I'm half white, and I have I have never even sought out trying to be involved. So my white side is Ukrainian and Norwegian, and my European ancestors came to the U.S. around the same time as my Japanese ancestors. I've never even tried to seek out being involved in the Ukrainian American or Norwegian American communities. Or, and I've never been interested in that culture. I've never related to that experience. Like, and partially it's because like, you know that you're not going to be like one time in this summer camp, I know this seems like a tiny thing, but there was a summer camp and they had this woman come and tell Scandinavian folk tales or something. And she said something about Norway. And I was like, Oh, I'm Norwegian. And she looked at me and said, Oh honey, no, you're not. <laughs> And I was like, what? Oh, wait, what I'm not. Heck? And then I was like, oh my God. Wait. I know. So it's like, it's like, if you, if those are the cues that you pick up on when you're a kid, like I, and also I know this is something you talked about that like made me light up a little bit. Like, oh, I, I feel this is like how the way you look impacts your identity. I know it seems like such a trivial thing, like your looks, but like I very much look Asian. I look Japanese. I've been told my whole life like that I look exactly like my mom and people don't even believe me when I say I'm half white. That's how much I, I can pass as full Asian. And it's interesting because I have a twin sister. You guys know my twin sister, Hana. Um, and she has the white thing really jumps out more for her in terms of the way she looks like she I don't I wouldn't say she's white passing but she looks like she's half white you know and it's like I think that fact that I look so Asian it makes it so that like I'm not comfortable in white spaces I don't feel like I'm part of that it was interesting when you said within your family there's certain things and then outside like for me like within my family my dad his family are very conservative midwesterners who are just about the whitest people you can imagine and going and spending time with them there's always weird stuff it's weird it's super weird you're in a room <laughs> of like 20 people and there's three asians and it's me my mom and my sister and there's weird jokes and weird questions and I obviously like I love my family, but it's a it's a weird spot to be in, especially as a kid. Like this is another weird little story. But one time my my white cousin told me and my sister, oh, well, I, she had this like pillow that had some cartoon character on it. And we were like, she was like, oh, don't you love this cartoon? And we were like, oh, I don't really like it. And she was like, oh, well, if you were American, you would. And I was like, <laughs> little like five year old me, I was huh? like, I am American. And she was like, no, you were adopted from China. <laughs> and I was like, no, oh. I'm not. I'm, not. Oh. I'm Japanese American. I'm I'm half oh. Japanese. I'm a quarter Ukrainian, quarter Norwegian, and I'm American. And she was like, no, no, you you should ask your mom about this because you were adopted from China. And I was like, what? <laughs> so like. I don't know. They come from this culture where the only Asians they'd ever met were adopted from China. And like, I don't know, that's like a super weird spot to be in as a kid. And mm -hmm. I just like, I don't know. It's like being, I obviously I wouldn't change a thing. I'm happy with who I am. I'm happy with where I am. But like definitely had some pretty awkward conversations with, with people because they're confused about my existence. <laughs> so yeah. 
That's always fun. <laughs> no, yeah. What like what Yoko said? Mixed genes are the weirdest thing because my siblings and I all look like my mom and don't look white at all. I remember going to the mall when I was younger and going with my dad to Wetzel Pretzel. And no joke, <laughs> the lady at the counter is like, "Oh, where did he come from?" Oh. My- and I was like eight, so I don't I don't remember how I felt, but now I'm like I would have went off on her if I was if that happened now. But Jeez. but anyway, yeah, I, imposter syndrome is definitely a real thing, and I mean it, it's hard to navigate between two cultures, and for me, it's hard trying to do it with three because I'm Japanese, Chinese, and on my dad's side, Jewish. And growing up in a household where we celebrate holidays from all three, and I learned bits and pieces of all three languages, and and now I can have a conversation with my family where I speak in a single sentence. I can say something Japanese, Hebrew, Mandarin, and English, and the sentence will make sense to anybody but my family. <laughs> and it's the craziest thing to think about, but it's like Yoko said again, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, there's... It's it is hard sometimes trying to balance all of that, but at the same time, like we have that unique story and we have a unique place now that we have these multiple stories and we have these different sides. And honestly, screw anyone who says that we don't belong somewhere or that we can't be somewhere just because we're not fully one thing. I mean, for me, the some of the best times I remember having are are getting to explore my multiple identities. I mean, being part of a mixed race club in college was fantastic. And I still have friends from that. I mean, when I was moved to DC, one of my friends from the club actually also moved to DC. So we hung out all the time. And I remember my friends coming and visiting us. And I think one of my favorite times was for Day of Remembrance a few years back. The LA Times was doing a uh, interview on my class, which was about the incarceration. And I happened to be the only person in the class who had family from the incarceration. But like I mentioned earlier, I also had family in the Holocaust. So the reporter instantly wanted to talk to me. And so we did a rep- I did an interview and sh- uh, they actually came and took my photo, which was, I still look at it back at it. And it's the strangest thing because it, it's me holding a replica of the poster that says instructions to all persons of Japanese ancestry. And I'm holding it while I'm wearing my yarmulke and my talus, which is what you wear to temple in Jewish tradition. And I look back at that picture and it's just the strangest thing to see these two identities coming together. And then it was even weirder when the article came out and my face was front and center on it because I was not told that I was going to be front and center on it. And I've talked to so many people and they found it so fascinating that I have these stories. And I think for all of us, we have those stories of where our cultures intersect and where they come together. And it's cathartic in a way. And it's amazing to explore those stories and how they come together. And, and for everyone, of course, it takes time to figure out where they where those intersections happen. And, and it takes time to come to terms with that and come to terms with having multiple identities. Some For some people, it's way much sooner than others. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think exploring those identities, whether that be specifically Japanese-American his identity or more broadly, multiracial identity is a really healing experience. All right. So we also are coming up on time. So I want to get to our last few questions. So turning to a lighter note, what has been your favorite part of being a part of the Nikkei Rising Committee and creating and producing the Yonsei podcast? And what takeaways or experiences have we learned from it and that you want to share? Um, actually, today, uh, I got a text from my aunt. And she said, like, oh, I finally got around to listening to your podcast. And I'm like, I'm so proud of you. And like, Aww. I 
<gasps> I know, right? She she listened to the episode about a question of loyalty. So her father's story was being told in, in like this kind of radio like medium. And we were able to like have like a short little text conversation. And it's like kind of opened up like a discussion on a larger scale about her family's history and um, about the ways that our family has dealt with and processed and in some ways ignored our history. So that like that's like the most obvious way that I've seen the the effects of this podcast and the discussions that we're bringing about as young Nikkei. So that I thought that was super cool. Um, for me, it's all about these like new or like rekindled connections that make me realize how one intertwined we are, but just like how small the world is because I've been working on the weekends at the picnic in the plaza in San Francisco's Japan town. And one of the other volunteers slash workers um, with me, we started talking and he said that he recognized my voice from the podcast or something. I don't know if I believe him. But <laughs> that is amazing. I love it. He just like started asking me about all, like all these questions about the podcast. And it was just so cool that people are actually listening. He loved that there was something out there for young Nikkei to express themselves. So I think it's really cool that we've been able to do that and bring that experience to other people and like kind of make them more aware that people are here talking about this and people want to get involved. And then I found out that he was coordinating the NCI program for this year. And that was, you know, I'm an alum of that program. So it's just so cool to see how everyone's kind of connected in their own little ways and how we ended up having so many mutual friends and how, you know, those friendships grow from just those little points of connection. And of course, all of you. <laughs> I think it's hilarious how as soon as you said he's running NCI, I know exactly who you're talking about. And I feel like we should shout him out real quick. Hi, um, Kenneth. So, <laughs> so, Kenneth, thank you for tuning in. Um, and excellent job with the Nikkei Community Internship, especially during this pandemic. I'm sorry so, I missed the reunion. but yes kind of building off what michelle was talking about i think it's great to hear how many people are actually affected by this podcast and how many people tune in just a few weeks ago we got an email from one of the elders saying that they tune into this podcast every week to learn more about how young japanese americans deal with this history and and how they identify with it. So knowing that not only are young people listening to this podcast, but those that we respect most in the community are also listening has just really opened my eyes and also warmed my heart. On top of that, I think another thing that is has been my like favorite thing about being a part of the Nikkei Rising Committee is honestly the family that we created over the summer. I am so happy to have met every single person in my committee. It's been an honor to be working with Matt, Yoko, Michelle, and Johnny for this podcast. And I honestly, I would not be where I am here today (laughs) without them uh, by my side and all of us working together. I honestly love the family that we made here. And I hope this is a family that keeps in touch for a very long time. We love you, Hiro. I feel like I also like, I see the podcast kind of less of content creation thing and more of like an exercise in community building. Like I've gotten to meet so many people like guests or people who reach out, who've listened, you guys, you know, like it's just, it really like solidifies these community bonds, even when we live in different cities and stuff. 
It's low-key, so, like, family therapy. <laughs> yeah, it's so, yeah. it's, like, cathartic and really, yeah, like, yeah. Ugh, good times. <laughs> no, yeah, the, my favorite thing about this whole podcast has really been, honestly, it's been making it with my friends. I mean, I, I knew, you know, obviously, I've known Hito for a while, and I met Michelle on Kakahashi, and then meeting Johnny and Yoko has been so much fun. And I think for all of us on the episodes, we got to work with our friends on these episodes. I mean, a lot of our guests were people we knew in the community or people we wanted to meet or people that we didn't know about until we got to talk to them and they were amazing. And now we have more mm-hmm. friends. So I think that is my favorite part about being a part of this community is so many of our friends and so many of the friends we make are a part of it and we get to work with them. And so, all right, last question, y'all. What do you see as the future of the Nikkei community? For me, I see it as sort of a responsibility of like the the young Nikkei youth of America to learn the lessons that we we can garner from our, our family's histories and our past and this painful, traumatic experience that the United States government inflicted upon us and not not just like ignore it, but to learn from it, to bring to light these these experiences, these hardships, and look around and see the other hardships that are happening in our in our communities today. These experiences didn't end with like the closing of the camps. These camps are still here um, at our southern border in in Tacoma, the Northwest Detention Center, or whatever it's called now. But all of these things they they reflect a greater narrative of how the United States has treated what they've seen as the other or immigrants or vulnerable communities that don't look like what they consider to be the American population. So I see it as our responsibility as people of color to leverage our privilege and to learn from our stories and to to leverage our stories as well to the more marginalized people of color in our country and to bring about justice and to to fight against anti-Blackness, to fight against the discrimination that other communities and our communities see on a daily basis. Yeah, it's just something that's been heavy on my heart lately with the Black Lives Matter uprising, the George Floyd uprisings all around our country and being able to see the passion and yeah, just we've had enough and we got to be part of the solution because if we're not, we're part of the problem. Absolutely. I think that I've heard people voice concerns about our history kind of being erased, but I think what I've been seeing a lot, whether through friends or even through social media, is that those personal stories are that driving connection that really has inspired people and motivated people to have an even stronger sense of wanting to advocate for other communities and continue the fight for all races and all groups that are discriminated against. So I think I've seen such empowerment within the Nikkei community and especially in younger generations. And I think that's what I see continuing on. And in that sense, also preserving our legacy or our ancestors' legacy through that continued fight. Okay. I mean, I feel like for me, this is a very loaded question. So in like the broadest, most general strokes, the future that I see for the Nikkei community is one that prioritizes solidarity and goes forward with the spirit of activism that we've seen from our predecessors and one that a community that can really find power in our history and recognize that the things that happen to us are not things that make us smaller or make us any worse than anyone else even though that was the intent at the time, they're actually things that now we can look back on and we can learn from and we can be proud of what 
our families overcame and how far we've come. And I feel like for me, my entire identity, bringing it back to like the the theme of the week, (laughs) my entire identity is really focused on being able to find power in, in our history. And I think that that's something that hopefully the Nikkei community will be able to do in the future. There are so many answers I could give for this, but I think a lot of what I would say has been said, so I will end off with this. I can't wait to see when our generation ends up taking over for the entire community and seeing the amazing and wonderful things we do and how different the community will be, but how rooted still in our identity and in the Nikkei experience it will be and how amazing of a place it will be for our kids and our grandkids to be a part of eventually. I know I'm sappy. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I can't wait till all our kids are playing J basketball together. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> our kids will all go to Obon together and then we'll be like, ah, back in the day, your parents used to make the Yonsei podcast. They're gonna be Even like, if our kids are like a quarter Japanese. We're gonna be the elders. <laughs> oh man. Well, we're coming up on time, so thank you for joining our final Tadaima episode. And on behalf of all five of us on the Yonsei team, I want to say thank you so much to all of our listeners these past few weeks for listening to our, our rambling thoughts, our ideas as young people, <laughs> and for tuning in and, and hearing what we have to say and what we're, we've been discussing. I also want to thank all of our, our guests for joining us and taking the time to have these conversations with us. and. It's been wonderful getting to know all of you and to hear a little bit about your stories, about your lives, about your experiences. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you, everybody. The response has been so great. And we're super excited to announce that we plan to continue the Beyonce podcast with a season two. So stay tuned for info Season two. See that one coming. Season two, baby. So while you're waiting for season two to arrive, if you want to catch up on this past season of the Yonsei podcast, on the previous episodes or the history, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei and other programs from Nikkei Rising, which will also be continuing. Hey! (laughs) So... The Yonsei Podcast is made by Hiro Odeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Fedorenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wiseboy, with theme music by Michelle Heckert. And once again, everybody on the Nikkei Rising and Yonsei Podcast team would like to thank you all for tuning in every week for the Yonsei Podcast and all the programs we've been presenting so far throughout the summer. And we really are so happy to know that you all have been enjoying our program so much. And we can't wait to see what's in store for the future. But anyways... This has been the Yonsei Podcast. And And it's been Yonsei! Oh, shoot. (laughs) (laughs)